Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we will be for a few minutes today. We are uh, trekking along in our series titled, Leave Your Mark. And just as a way of reminder, the whole idea, the whole premise of this series is that Jesus left his mark by coming to earth, by living a sinless life, by showing us what it means to be his follower, to take up a cross, to follow after him, to put others first, to love people well. He left his mark on the world. And then he went to the cross, he bore the sins of mankind, and he died, but he didn't stay in the tomb. As we know how the story goes, and as we'll see in a few weeks, he rose from the tomb, rose from the grave. And in doing so, we became justified. We were set free from our sin. And so Jesus left this mark on the world, so much so that 2,000 years later, we still talk about it. As my good friend Brian Dunaway says, he refers to the Bible as the world's bestseller. Okay, for good reason, because Jesus left his mark on the world. Now then, John Mark, who is traditionally considered to be the author of this book, writing down the words of Peter, left his mark on the world by telling us the story of Jesus. At the time this was written, Paul's Gospels had been written, Roman persecution was very strong, very high, and you had Paul's letters But somebody realized the story of Jesus was not written down. And so John Mark, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, through the words of Peter, undertook this task to write the story. And as we have read it, you realize it's written with a great deal of urgency. You know, there's no long birth story. You know, there is not the really the baptism. There's not the temptation in the wilderness so much. I mean, it might mention those things, but it jumps right in. Jesus is dealing with demon encounters. Okay? And we hear the word immediately all throughout the book. Or as soon as. Some sort of phrase like that. Forty different times throughout the gospel, it says immediately. And this happened. This happened. It happened immediately. So you feel the urgency that Mark wrote this book. And so he leaves his mark by giving us the story of Jesus. We leave our mark by living like Jesus. In our places of work, in our neighborhoods, the people that we come in contact with, that's how we leave our mark. And so that's what we're trying to do throughout this study. And of course, you know, there's all kinds of play on words that I've been using throughout the whole series because it just works well, and it's helping us to take a very practical approach at this book. And I think we're going to do it today as we look at a text that really you could spend a lot of time going really deep into the theology of. And we'll do that just a little bit, but really we're going to look more at the practical side of it. And that's where we're going to be today in, in Mark 9 as we, we look at the, the transfiguration. Well, I am, whether you know this or not, or believe this or not, I am naturally, by my genetic makeup, I am an introvert. 
I don't know if you believe that or not. I had just happened to hold a job that requires me not to be introverted. I don't know how that happened. I had nothing to do with it. That was the Lord's call, not mine. But naturally, my tendency is to be introverted. I am completely 100% fine being by myself for long stretches of time. Now, and I, and I do that. I love people. But I got to be honest, I don't draw my energy from people. An extrovert draws their energy from the crowd, right? The extroverts in here say amen. Well, we got two extroverts here. Everybody else is with me. Okay, I'm really telling you stuff you already know then. <clears throat> Our extroverts all went to children's church. <laughs> but, you know, that's who I am. Okay, um, I love people, but in order for me to to recharge, then I have to get away. I have to have time to myself. I have to have time with God, just kind of get alone. And it's me and God. And that's how I recharge. Now, I have places where this works for me really well. One of the places you saw last night is my fire pit. And I love to sit around my fire pit. I have a corner that I sit in, which I sat in last night. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you sit in my fire pit. But directly opposite from where I sat, there is a blue cross painted on the 4 by 4 across from me, from where I was sitting last night. And so sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll focus on that. <clears throat> I get alone, I'm with God, I'm, usually it's very quiet, and that's one of the places where I recharge. Another thing that I like to do is I like to just get in my car and just drive. Drive out into the country, drive the, the roads. I think I've driven every single road in Thomas County multiple times. And when I'm doing this, I'm listening to either uh, a sermon, I'm listening to a, a podcast, or very often, I'm listening to nothing. I'm just driving, and it's quiet, and some people can't stand that. Okay, I don't know if it's the voices in their head that get to them, too much noise inside going on, but I can do that. I can just listen to absolutely nothing. And there is a church that's way out in the country. It's a little Presbyterian church, old, white, um, framed building. And I will pull in there, and there's nobody there. There's me and a bunch of cows, and I'll sit there and I'll read from a book of prayers that I have. And I usually will uh, go through the Lord's Prayer while I'm out there. And that's one of the things that I do to... Um, to recharge. And you know, these for me, these are sort of mountaintops for me. Where I get alone, I'm with God, they help me to, they help me to recharge. They help me to draw my energy uh, so that I can go out and, and do what, what I have to do. So the question that I want to ask you this morning, you don't necessarily have to answer, or if you want to answer it out loud, that's fine. But where or what are your mountaintops? You know, where are you the most in tune with God? <clears throat> Where's the place that you go to to reconnect with Him? Maybe you, you get alone by yourself. Or it might be that you get together with a, a group of family and friends. And that's kind of your mountaintop experience where you go to recharge. You go to reconnect. I can't tell you how many times in my career that I have heard... Kids all the way to teenagers go to something like Camp Wiregrass 
or go to impact or some other event. And because of the atmosphere, because of the spiritual high that they experience, they say, you know, I don't want to ever leave here. I wish we could just stay here all the time. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of people that made their decision on college based on going to things like that. Either because a group of them from camp was all going to go to a school or because they went to impact at Lipscomb University or one of the other camps at our Christian universities. And they liked the atmosphere there so much that they made their decision to go there. And really what they're saying is, is I'm having this mountaintop experience and I want to experience this all the time. Okay. And, and we love mountaintop experiences. Do we not? We do. We love them. But as tempting as it is to stay on the mountaintop, guess what? We can't. We can't. For one, it kind of would diminish the mountaintop. But two, there are other reasons that we can't stay. There are reasons that we have to come back down. And we're going to talk about those this morning. So for the last two weeks... You know that I have been playing around with the predictions that Jesus has made. We've spent two solid weeks talking about the shift that takes place in the book of Mark at chapter 8 around verse 31, the first time Jesus predicts his own death. Okay, He does it a chapter later in the chapter we're in, in chapter 9. And then he does it again in chapter 10. And if you remember what we said is that that first part of the book focuses on the power of Jesus. But once he begins to predict his death, there's a shift that takes place and it's now focused on his, a word that we don't like, shame. It's focused on what he is going to do as he begins to walk step by step toward the cross. And you remember last Sunday, we looked at all three of those death predictions in the sermon that was titled Dead Man Walking, because that's what Jesus essentially was becoming. He was walking toward his fate. He was walking toward the crucifixion, the event that is going to split time, the event that is going to save all mankind from from humanity. Well, guess what? We're going to come back, and we're still hanging out in this, this area, because I think a lot of times we just focus on the miracles, We just focus on the good stuff, on the power, on the resurrection, and we forget about the shame that Jesus had to endure, the suffering that he had to go through. And I want to make sure as we go through this book that we have an understanding that while those things are very important, the shame is closer to where we live, closer to to what we deal with on a day in and, and day out basis. The suffering that Jesus endured. We we understand that because we suffer as as well. And so this is what is about to happen. Jesus has told the disciples in chapter eight that he is going to die. And then about a week later, something happens. Look at uh, Mark chapter nine, verse two, and it'll be on the screen behind me. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. And he was transfigured. He was transfigured in front of them. 
Like I said, this takes place about a week after he has made his first prediction. And you know, I imagine this was probably pretty refreshing for Jesus. Because he's in his 30s at this point. He is subject to earth and its laws. You know, things like gravity. Things like time. Things like hunger and tiredness and all of those things that that humans have to deal with. Okay, he has left the glory of heaven. He has come down to earth. And now all of a sudden he goes up on the mountain and he is transfigured before them. And I imagine that it was refreshing for Jesus to reconnect with the glory that he had left behind. Peter and James and John, they have a front row seat where they're allowed to see the transfiguration. And they're allowed to see this so that they could be strengthened for the dark days that are, are coming. That they don't know anything about, but Jesus is trying to slowly prepare them for it. I'll say more about that in a little bit. So he was transfigured in front of them. Three and four say this. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And then notice this. Elijah appeared to them with Moses... And they were talking with Jesus. Now that's interesting. I mean, anybody else could have shown up, but nobody did. I mean, it could have been Abraham. It could have been Isaac. It could have been Jacob. You know, the, the three kind of forefathers that we think of. But it's not them. It is Elijah and it is Moses. And it's these guys for a very particular reason. There is a significance of them being there because Elijah and Moses represent the law and the prophets. Okay? Moses was the supreme lawgiver to the Israelites. We know that. God called him up on Mount Sinai, handed him the law. Moses went back down to the people and delivered the law to the people. And he continued to reveal that law. Elijah was the first and greatest of the prophets. But Jesus is not just equal to Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah. He is the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. The significance is that the greatest lawgiver... And the greatest prophet are confirming Jesus' mission. You see, as the three of them are gathered there on the, on the top of this mountain, and they're, they're talking, what we realize is that they saw in Jesus the consummation of everything that they had done in their past. All that they had looked forward to in the future. All history is leading up to the cross and they are assuring Jesus that he was on the right path. Remember a couple of weeks ago as we first started talking about this stuff, I preached a message titled Mission Clarification. Where the disciples thought one thing, they thought you know, they were on, the, on the, the power cruise, remember? And then found out they're on the death boat. Okay, Jesus cleared that up for them. You got it wrong. This could be Mission Clarification Part 2. Okay, because Moses and Elijah are there. They are assuring Jesus that what he is doing is the right thing. 
Now then notice verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters or maybe tabernacles, maybe how yours reads, or maybe even tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say since they were, what? Terrified. There it is. Imagine what that's like. Peter and James and John are getting to glimpse something that they have never seen before. They are taken up on the mountain. Jesus is changed before them into his his heavenly glory. They get to witness it. And then Moses, the supreme lawgiver, and Elijah, the supreme prophet, show up and see them talking together, and Peter absolutely cannot help himself. He opens his mouth, and he begins to talk. They're absolutely terrified. James and John are terrified, but they at least have the good sense not to say anything. But Peter speaks when he should be silent and reverent because he is witnessing the glory of Jesus he is witnessing this this holy moment and he breaks the reverie by talking Peter misses the holiness of the moment by talking when he should have been basking in the glory of Jesus makes me wonder how many times we do the same thing How many times do we miss the holiness, the glory of Jesus by feeling the need to talk instead of just sitting in silence? Is it uncomfortable yet? We have trouble with silence. Peter talks as Peter often does. Have you ever had this happen? You know, you're caught up in the glory of God. I mean, you're this, we, we have some pretty powerful moments of worship around here. That are just incredible. We have some pretty powerful things that, that happen uh, on, on Wednesday nights, even when a, when a crowd is, is smaller. But you get caught up in the worship. You get caught up in the glory of, of God and of Jesus only to have somebody speak and break the reverie of the moment. You ever had that happen? It's, it's aggravating, is it not? Because you're there, you're in the moment, you're feeling it, you're connecting with God, only to have somebody raise their hand and say something that doesn't really have anything to do with what's happening. That's why I think it's important that when we gather for worship, that we have our hearts and our souls and our minds unified, focused, so that we don't miss Moments of holiness that are all around us. So we don't miss opportunities just to sit and bask in the glory of 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's why the the prophet Habakkuk would write, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That was not just a command to, to shut up. It's the command, be still and know that I am God. To know my, my presence, to be in my presence and just, just be. Don't say anything, don't do anything, just, just be. But man, we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with quiet. We struggle with sitting still. You know, and, and I, when I say we, I include myself, okay? I, I am, I'm that way, okay? Because I also talk for a living. And so it's sometimes I feel like I have to interject something. Like people, like the world needs my words, okay? You know, sometimes you just get that way. But a lot of times when we do that, we miss what is happening. Verse 7. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The God who has spoken in the past through the law and the prophets is now speaking lovingly and directly to and about his son. These words of God here also confirm the mission and the path of Jesus that the way to life is the path of death. That the way for all this to come about, all this this new life is to the cross and to to the resurrection. And you know, these are the same words, these are some of the same words that God speaks to Jesus at His baptism. Jesus comes up out of the water, you have the dove descending and then God speaks he says this is my son with who I am well pleased as God speaks on the mount of transfiguration he says this is my son listen to him listen to what he has to say he is confirming and affirming the message of Jesus the mission of Jesus to go to the cross this really could have said this is my son Peter listen to him This is my son, Kendall. Listen to him. This is my son, insert all of our names. Because it's not about your own power. It's not about your own glory. It's not about your own agenda. It's not about self-serving living. It's about humility. It's about love. It's about Laying down your agenda. It's about laying down our personal preferences. And it's about taking up the cross of Jesus. Because he's already said, if anybody wants to follow me, they must do what? They must take up a cross and follow me. God is saying, hey, you know that thing he said about he's going to die on the cross? And if you're going to follow him, that you have to take up your cross? You need to listen to him. Because that's... That's what this whole thing is about. It's about come and die. 
that's, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words. That when Jesus bids someone come and follow, he is bidding them to come and die. To die to self. To die to their own agenda. To die to, to anything that is not of God's will. And he bids us to pick up the cross and follow him. And so as God says, this is my son. He's not just speaking this to Peter and James and John. He's speaking it to all of us. But he's also saying to Jesus that what you are doing is my will. You are doing my will. Carry on. And then as quickly as it happens, it ends. Look at verse 8. Suddenly, looking around... They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down, <coughs> excuse me, as they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You see, they're still pondering the meaning of his death prediction that he made a week earlier. The reason that Jesus tells them not to say anything is that they still don't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Only the cross and only the resurrection can do that. And we see that you know, they don't understand until the resurrection happens. Until the Holy Spirit comes on them at Pentecost, you know, they still don't fully grasp what's happening. Now then, watch, watch what happens the rest of the text. Verse 10. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they began to question him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus says Elijah does come first and he restores everything, he replied. How is it? How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt... But I tell you that Elijah really has come. And they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it was written about him. He's not just talking about Elijah the prophet. He's also talking about John the Baptist. You remember back in the book of Luke in chapter 1, how it talks about Elijah the forerunner was going to come, or John the Baptist was going to come and going to minister in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Okay? When Jesus said this, he's saying this has already happened. Everything that is going to happen, remember, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Elijah, the prophet came, he spoke the word. The next Elijah, John the Baptist came, and guess what? They did whatever they wanted to him. Remember what happened? He's arrested by Herod. Herod likes to hear what he has to say. But Herod, in a moment of absolute lust for his stepdaughter, gives in and has John the Baptist beheaded. They did whatever they want. And so Jesus is saying, do you not see that all of these things are happening? The things that I'm telling you, you need to listen to, just like my father just said. You need to listen to this. And so they head back down the mountain. Here's the Jesus marks. The crucifixion would have and could have 
crushed the hopes of the disciples. So Jesus allows them, and us by the way, a glimpse of his glory in which Jesus was transfigured and they heard the confirming voice of God. That all of this has to come about for a reason. The transfiguration gave them comfort during their dark night of the soul. The transfiguration can do the same for us if we'll allow it. You see, even though they don't fully understand it at the time, the transfiguration forever marked Peter. And as I was thinking about this text this morning, I began to wonder if maybe it was the transfiguration that gave Peter the courage to follow when no one else would after Jesus was arrested. I don't know, but maybe. But it left its mark on Peter. Listen to what he writes in the, in the book of Second Peter. He said, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter spent the rest of his life marked by Jesus. He spent the rest of his life living as best he could, like Jesus. And just like Jesus, Peter also went to a cross. The only difference is that not feeling worthy to die in the same manner Jesus did, he requested to be crucified, inverted, upside down. Jesus left his mark on Peter. So what does this mean to us? What do we need to know from this text? And then what do we need to do with it? And this is where it gets real practical right here. And this is where it comes back to the beginning where I talk about the mountaintop things. Because... Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop. Let's set up tabernacles. Let's stay here. Let's worship you. Jesus left his mark by revealing his glory to the disciples then and now on the mountain. Okay? Again, Peter wanted to stay on the mountain. He wanted to worship. And that's great. And mountaintop experiences are wonderful. We have to have them. Okay, but we don't necessarily leave our mark on the mountaintop. We leave our mark by going back down to the people who are in the valley. Does that make sense? That's how we leave our mark. There's an old, old acapella song that's called Mountaintop. I was listening to it late last night. I was listening to it again this morning as I was putting my PowerPoint together. And it says... 
uh, something to the effect of, you know, I love to stay on the mountaintop and be fellowshipping with the Lord. I love to stay on the mountaintop. Okay. But then it goes on and it says, but I must come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below because they will never know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord. You see, and that's, that's it. That's the, the whole reason. Mountaintop experiences are great and we absolutely have to have them. We have to have those times where we get away and it's just us and God. Okay, how do we know that? Because Jesus did it all the time. Right? All the time. Okay, that's an example for us. Get away, pray. Okay, go somewhere. Connect with the Spirit of God somewhere. Wherever that be, if, if it's... You know, while you're driving to work in the morning, you kind of have that quiet time. Or if you get up and you've got a place in your house where you sit and you just listen to scripture or you listen to music or something like that. Or if it is another physical location that you get to go to from time to time. And, you know, that's it. That's where you feel like you are the most connected to God. We have to do those things. Okay. But guess what? We can't stay in those places Because the cross is not on the mountaintop. The cross is back down in the valley. And we have to go back down in the valley to pick up the cross. And we know that because what happens in the very next story? Jesus and Peter and James and John, they come down the hill and they find the rest of the, of the disciples who are doing spiritual warfare with a demon. And guess what? They cannot get rid of it. Jesus didn't stay on the mountaintop. Jesus came back down to the valley because that's where the people are. And if we are trying to be like Jesus and leave marks like Jesus, then we can't spend all of our time on the mountaintop. We have to come back down to the valley because that's where the people are. So that's how we leave our mark. Question marks. Number one, do I have a mountaintop where I go to to experience the glory of the sun? If you do, that's great. Continue going there. But if you don't, find one. It doesn't have to be any physical location. It can just be stopping somewhere, just hitting the pause button on life, getting away for a few minutes and focusing on God and just being with God. Okay? Second question. Am I sometimes tempted to spend all my time on the mountaintop? Well, yeah. Why wouldn't we be? Okay, yes, we are sometimes tempted to spend all our time on the mountaintop. Okay, I can do that easily without any problem. But we have to keep asking ourselves, why is it important for me to return to the valley of the shadow of death? Well, because there's death down there. There's people that are hurting, that are dying, that are oppressed, that are experiencing injustice, that are tied up in sin and need the touch of Jesus. They need somebody just to speak, if nothing else, a kind word to them. To love them and to show them that there is a better way. And finally, who in the valley do I need to point toward the glory of Jesus? 
If you're spending time in the valley, then you know who that person is. Somebody is in your life right now that needs to know that there is something better than the pain and the hurt and the suffering that we experience on a daily basis. Somebody, somebody needs you to say, hey, guess what? I've been to the mountaintop. I've been to a better place. This is not it. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4 and into 5, he would say, outwardly we're wasting away. Okay, We die a little more every single day. Our bodies get older, they go haywire, they do things we don't want them to do, we lose control of things we once had control over. It happens every single day. But he says, inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. And this slight and momentary affliction, which I probably wouldn't have said slight nor momentary, slight or momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. For what we see is temporary. But what we're looking forward, looking toward is eternal. What is temporary will go away, but what is eternal will last forever. And then he goes on and he says, you know, we live in tents. And one day these tents will be destroyed, but we're awaiting a house made from God, a house in the heavens that will never be destroyed. Okay? That's the, that's the new life. That's the new body. That's the... That's the mountaintop that we're ultimately going to get to and stay for eternity once we finally get out of the valley. There are people that don't know about that mountaintop. Our job is to point people there. You want to leave a mark in somebody's life? Step into their hurt, step into their struggle, step into their pain and say, hey, look, there's a better way. I don't have all the answers, but I at least have one answer. And that answer is Jesus. And you love them, you serve them, you take up a cross and bear their burden. They may not listen to you then, but that doesn't mean your work's done in vain. A seed will have been planted. The mountaintop is good. And we have to go there. But we must come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below because they'll never know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord.